Welcome to the Movies on the Brain podcast. I am one of your hosts this evening, Brian C. Wood, and with me, Dan Metz. Welcome to another weird, wild, and wacky week in the world of genre movie news. So, Chad, ye old Chris Nolan, he has imparted his wisdom of faith to the cinema world that he might have found his next project. Would you like to guess what the topic of his next film will be? Um, shit, I don't know. Dinosaurs. Uh, that would be fun, and I don't think Nolan has any inkling of what that is. No, sir, he's going to make a movie about the Oppenheimer Project, uh, the creation of the atom bomb in Ooh. World War II, and he's eyeing, eyeing Colin Murphy to uh, work with him once again. Uh, and so Christopher Nolan is putting together a project as we speak, which means somewhere Netflix is writing a check. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, <sighs> I, I, I hope people remember everything he said about streaming and all this stuff and all the hoopla he, he rose over Tenet's uh, release with Warner Brothers. Because if the first thing he does out the gate is to do um, Netflix, I need, I need them. I need the press to come out and, say, and point at him and say, but you said all these things. Remember what you said. I just think that it's... it's it's the same funding discussion that we have with, uh, with Scorsese and the same funding thing that we have with several major players. It's just like, who's going to give them the money? The, the streamers are the only ones willing to give them the money that they want to make their movies. And the only place up until this point that was giving Christopher Nolan the money was Warner's because that was where he, he started. He became a blossoming artist. They, they did the Dark Knight trilogy. He became the hottest thing in Hollywood. And Warners likes to keep their guys happy, i.e., you know, see Ben Affleck for a period of time. Like, you know, live by night is a thing that exists because, because he made Argo. Like, he, he was like, I'm going to take this capital that I have with that from Warners because I've made the, the town, I've made Argo, two highly successful films for you. I'm going to go take that those two for you. And I'm going to make one for me. And so, like, they like to keep their guys in-house and happy. Uh, look at how much they went through with Zach for years, right? I, the fact that he's just going to walk away from that, I just, I just can't see him putting his stuff up for bid. I just really can't. I mean, while he was doing all that Warner work, I do think the other studios would have been happy to work with him. But, you know, as you pointed out, uh, Warner's like to keep like to keep their guys, especially their their auteurs, because you know that's what they're they're driven by. Um, but their relationship is frayed because of the the streaming model from the pandemic, which honestly I think Christopher Nolan's being a little bit irrational. Uh, some would say diva ish. Uh, let me not say diva ish because that sounds makes it bad implication towards women no but he's doing he's he's really being holier than thou in this instance of this is the way cinema should be i don't care what else is going on blah 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 so i don't think he should leave warners i think warners would probably be willing to make overtures to make this right uh however i the way he screamed and you know basically dumped on their streaming model, calling it the worst streamer out there. Um, I don't think he can, 
I don't think he can go like can willingly say I'm going back to Warner's right now because he made such a stink about how they did everything. Now, um, if he wants to wait and then do it, maybe like next year when he knows that things are coming in streamers, I mean, coming back to the theater, maybe he does that route. But if he's trying to get his next project off the ground like now and he has to take money from Netflix, it's just like, what are you doing, dude? You know, you know how their theatrical model is. Yes, you can negotiate for a, a theatrical release, but it's not going to be what you've been championing for. It's only going to be very limited because that's what Netflix does. And they're going to throw it on to Netflix that you've been screaming the opposite of that. So I think for his, for the, for his credibility, he really, he shouldn't go to Netflix, but also for his credibility, he can't just go back to Warner's willy nilly. So maybe one of those, maybe one of the other studios is like, you know, we'll take it. Um, But we're going to take it for when we know theaters are opening. So next year or the year after that. If you think that this guy is pious and up his own rear end, uh, what do you think Bienville is? Because both Bienville and Patty Jenkins have said very similar things regarding streaming and the, the you know, performance, uh, the, the arena of choice for their movies. I know exactly. I know what Patty said. And I thought that was um, short-sighted of her to say. I mean, again, I understand all these directors, when they make these movies, they want people to see them on the big screen. But I mean, in actuality, the vast majority of people probably see all their movies at home some other way um, through what used to be video, DVD, Blu-ray rentals. Uh, Now, probably um, just probably streaming services or they could just watch them when they come on TV. And that is in a different format than what they shot it in. And it has the added thing of commercials, but that might be how people see their movie. And that might be what draws, like seeing it that way might actually draw them to go out and find like the original version. But the theatrical version that they're championing so much really and truly is in the theaters for like three, four months tops. And then after that, it's in this other format that you're dragging. So it's really short-sighted. Lots of people see movies different ways. And while it might not be the way the director intended, you still want people to see what you've done. You still want people to see your art. So discrediting any way they can see it, again, is short-sighted because it makes, it makes people that only see things at home or only see things when they have time to, uh, via streaming, be like, well, I don't want to see your work because you are looking down on me for the way that I can view these uh, these movies. I mean, I get it. You don't want your movie to be seen for the first time by somebody sitting on an airplane. But everybody has to discover art somewhere. I mean, 85% of the, of the population of the United States is not going to be able to ever go to Paris to actually physically see the Mona Lisa. And it's not like they take it around and they, they do a touring showcase with it. I mean, they see it in textbooks. They learn about it through 
you know, uh, PowerPoint slide presentations in art history class. Like that's how they learn and discover the artist behind the painting and then learn more about what they did. And that leads to them looking up and discovering more works by that particular artist and learning to love and appreciate their individual style. You don't, you, you're just never going to see the most, like <clears throat> there are financial and travel implications for physically seeing the Mona Lisa. But whether you see the Mona Lisa with your own eyes or not, you know what the Mona Lisa is, you know the history of it, and you can appreciate it without ever having physically laid eyes on it. And it's, it's the same way here. Just because a film was released in theaters, um, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that the people uh, in the moment or people in the generations coming after are going to discover it that way, especially with the way that second run uh, rights are so tangled up in the last 10, 15 years. Um, you know, summer camps used to be all about, you know, taking kids to the movie theater to see second and third run movies, right? Well, you know, studios put a clamp down on that. They put huge licensing fees on theaters. They, like, certain things, companies like, you know, Bonavista Entertainment make it notoriously different, difficult to screen their movies. So, you know, it's... It's just one of those things where, like, I love The Godfather. I didn't see The Godfather in a theater with people until about 10 years after I saw it in, you know, on DVD for the first time. You know, uh, James Gunn made the, the great analogy about Jaws. Most of the people who know Jaws saw it on TNT at some point. You know, you discover it different, different people come to it in different ways, and it doesn't diminish their love or their passion or their understanding of the art. And I just wish that more people would, would get behind that and understand it. The interesting thing to me now is the business decisions that companies like Bonavista Entertainment are now gonna make regarding their streaming and whether or not to keep their movies in theaters only. And as we saw this weekend, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, a $35 million opening weekend, 50% drop, normal hold for the MCU. And Disney announcing that the Eternals will also be uh, on in theaters. We, you know, we we've been saying we, we gotta wait to see what the, the second weekend does. And yeah, a traditional drop. It kind of mean it kind of it's kind of looking like people re, will resume close to normal viewing habits for movies if it's something they want to see, and it's only in theaters. If Shang-Chi was in was also on Disney Plus, uh, that drop's probably gonna be massive. It's probably looking at like 15 million. 75%. Yeah. Um, but because it's only in theaters, people will I don't want to say risk it, but they will brave going out wearing a mask and sitting in the theater to see something that they want to see. Um which again that the opening weekend already had the ripple effect because you know venom unfortunately got moved up to my goddamn birthday yay me um when when it had it had played like footsies but going backwards two weeks and now it moved up a week from the original day so they saw that the theatrical model works for things that people want to see uh 
Disney is doubling down on it by saying Eternals is uh, going to be theatrical only. All of that plus, you know, hopefully, hopefully we're hitting the peak of Delta and things are going down and then more people feel comfortable going. And then will the box office will kind of feel like normal. Well, for those movies we want to see. I'm curious what that means for, I mean, I think the rest of the year, anything that's that's theatrical plus streaming is going to be what we've seen so far. If people want to see it, they'll go to the theaters, uh, it'll get a bump, it'll have a bump, an opening weekend, and then drop like a stone the second week. Theatrical only, they're going to make money, uh, particularly if like, Shang-Chi, Venom, Eternals, they're going to make money. Everything else, I'm I'm curious uh, how people are going to react to that because that shortened window, going from 60 days to 45, um, people are going to wait you out. It's, it's only six weeks. Um, you forget about it for like two weeks and then bam, there it is. So I don't... I don't know if you can go I, because you're going to 45. I don't know if you can go back to 60, but I think for theater sake, 60 is probably the best. But also, once we finally get out of streamers, are people just like, I'm only going to see the big things and I don't care about the rest of that. I'll just see it in six weeks. Uh, that's part of the implications from all of this. We won't know those things and until we get a clearer picture of the box office. Um, post outbreaks post covid i mean i mean the interesting thing to me is going to be the the acceptable loss of of revenue um uh universal announced this week that, that halloween kills will do day and date um streaming and, and theatrical um sony as you mentioned announced that they're going to move venom up two weeks and make it theatrically exclusive um, Disney announced, while well, they did announce the Eternals and West Side Story and The Last Duel will all have theatrical exclusive win, uh, debuts, they also announced that one of their uh, animated films, their Pixar films, is going to be uh, only in theaters for the 45 days and then be available, or is going to be in theaters for only like 20 days or something like that, three weeks or something and then go directly to theater, uh, to video. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to me that they're in this place because, you know, the Marvel brand has staying power. You know, it's, it's something people are willing to come out and, and see. Yeah, and will, that, will, that be, will that be the case for West Side Story? Will that be the case for The Last Duel? Will it be the case for any number of other smaller films that, are going to need that kind of, you know, uh, that kind of uh, of run. Wait, so West Side Story is going to be uh, exclusively West, theatrical? West, West Side Story and uh, The Last Duel, the Ridley Scott movie that just uh, debuted at the Venice Film Festival too. Good reaction, not over the top reaction, but, you know, good reaction. Wait, are they both Warner Brothers? Uh... No, they're neither one of those are Warner Brothers. Those are both uh, those are both Fox. Oh well, yeah, that's right. That's right. What's that story? Is Fox okay? Um, 
Yeah. Okay. Because I was one. I I don't know why I thought West Side Story was Warner Brothers, and I was like, "How are you going to negotiate that when I know Denny Villeneuve is going to be like, but me? Why not me?" Um, I'm curious how those will do too. Because I, what is Last Duel in December as well? Yes, and okay. it's uh, and it's in Cantu. It'll hit hit new. It, it'll hit Disney Plus on Christmas Eve, thirty days after release, instead of. 45. Okay. I don't know how the last dude was going to do. Um, West Side Story, I'm curious about because it has the name West Side Story. Does that, and it's going to be around Christmas, does that drive, like, is that going to be the counter programming for Spider Man? If people are feeling really good about the theaters at the time, is that the counter programming for Spider Man? Like, you know, it's family time and I can finally go to the theater, but I don't want to see Spider-Man. Oh, I know the name West Side Story. Do I want to go see that? Or is this a case of people wanting to wait or not caring? Uh, I don't know. It's hard for me to gauge West Side Story because I'm not around people as much as I used to be anymore. And I don't know the temperature for that movie. Again, we... When we saw Shang-Chi, it was one of the trailers before the movie. And my daughter was like, because I, I knew what it was. And I was like, oh, this is West Side Story. She's like, how do you know? And then I had to explain what it is to her. And she's like, oh, and she barely cared. It was barely registered. Granted, she's 12, but. But, but that's, that's my concern as well, given the reaction to uh, what was the Warner Brothers movie with Linda Mo- in the Heights. The, the mm-hmm. reaction to In the Heights in June was over the off the charts for critics, and then it died on arrival at theaters. Yeah, and I, I think what West Side Story is a bit more well-known. Uh, in, in the Heights... And you, have Spielberg's, and you have Spielberg's name attached. Yeah, see, but see, this is where West Side... I mean, not West Side Story. In the Heights is confusing to me because it is coming off of... Um, everybody knows Hamilton. This is the creative Hamilton. This is the show before Hamilton. I don't know if they marketed it as, hey, this is Hamilton. This is like everything that did, everybody did Hamilton is doing this. But again, it's getting marketed in the middle of the pandemic. So I don't know if people paid attention to that or not. Um, but yeah, Spielberg's name does still, it probably still carries some weight. Um, but I, I just don't, I just don't know. And again, I hate to keep using my daughter, but, you know, she is the product of two people that did, you know, focus on English. So we both are very aware of, you know, the West Side Story and its ties to Romeo's and Juliet. So if anybody would have any kind of awareness about it, it would be her. And she's like, I do not care. And I mean, the only the only interest for me uh, you know, the, the original version is always going to stand out as a classic, but the only interest for me really is t- to see a master of the craft in Spielberg take his production team that he's been around for the last 20 years, working, you know, at a fever pitch pace for the last 20 years to make movies. His team is so honed that, like, they know they have their own language, right? To see him take that skill set and apply it to the blocking and the shooting of a musical. 
you know, Ridley Scott this week, his old rear ends coming out the woodwork saying, you know, now that I've done this, uh, this last dual movie, maybe time to move out of medieval times and do a Western and a musical before I die. And I'm like, a Ridley Scott musical is not something I can get my head around. Um, at least with Spielberg, like he had talked about it forever about having a passion for doing a musical. And that's the interest of that film for me is, you know, how is he going to shoot it? Is he going to get the performances that he needs from it? And and what kind of a factor will it be in the awards race? That's that's the interest for me. Is that same interest going to be there for the layperson who just sees Spielberg's name and West Side Story? And that's going to be the interesting part. It's, it's going to be an interesting time because I think we're in a point, another point of flux um, because we're seeing the studio try to figure it out on the fly. Uh, we, it, the whole pandemic is still going on, but it seems like we might have a window to like get out of this thing. And now they're seeing what movies are making money and they need, they want and need money. So how they manage all these things, it, it's going to be interesting from now until at least the end of the year. Indeed. Speaking of the way these things are working, Chad, uh, there is a movie that is scheduled for release December the 22nd on both HBO Max and in theaters. It is the sequel to a hit movie from the year of our Lord, 1999. It is the one, the only, The Matrix. Sir, there was a trailer this week for Matrix Revolutions, which tried to mimic some sort of very cool, neat, you know, internet thing that would have been really cool in 2001. Uh, what did you make of the trailer and the footage and the idea of the guy from Aquaman being a younger version of Morbius, played by Lawrence Fishburne? I will say visually, everything about the trailer is is shot and looks visually appealing and, and it's beautifully constructed. Now, with that out the way, this trailer did nothing for me. Absolutely nothing. I don't know if it's because of how I feel about the, the third movie, which granted I have not seen in years. Um, you know, I saw the I I saw the first movie in theaters. It's it's probably one of it's it's one of the movies I know that I saw. I had no idea what it was and just went in with my friends and my brothers and we watched it and it blew our minds. It blew my little uh hell, I was 17 at the time, blew my 17-year-old mind. And got me excited for those sequels, uh, which I liked the second and not did not like the third at all. I think I've only seen it once, maybe twice. So I see this trailer and it just it it didn't get me excited to go back to this world. It uh I sure I'm curious. I'm curious why we're back here, why is Neo back in the Matrix? Why is Trinity here when we saw her die in the the real world of the matrix why is morpheus now 20 years younger than neo when he was uh you know like 15 years older when we first saw him i'm curious about all those things but it's i'm not excited to see any of it i i just want to at this point i just want to satisfy my curiosity that that's all it, it piqued my curiosity and i just want that satisfied but i have i 
I don't have a need or want to go see this, which is, uh, I don't know if I'm saying surprising because every time I've heard something about Matrix 4, a lot of it was, I'll believe it when I see it. And then when they were really making it, I was like, I don't know if I want this. And now it's like, I guess I'll see it when I see it. So I was in high school when uh, the, the sequels came out, the two sequels back to back. And I remember famously my dad taking me of all people to see it and falling asleep in the middle of one of the loudest movies I've ever been in. Um, I'm a rare bird in that I like Cloud Atlas and I think Cloud Atlas is bold and beautiful and just a unique film that is the peak of what I think of as high concept sci-fi. Cloud Atlas does things that I think Valerian tries to do unsuccessfully. Uh, it's it's a really good performance by Tom Hanks. It's it's just a fun time. It's a good time. I'm not, however, a defender of Jupiter Ascending. I am not a fan of of you know, you know, uh, oh, our boy Eddie Redmayne just screaming his head off for no particular reason. Um, my point being that this particular screenwriting duo has had a very checkered past in the terms of post matrix success uh see speed racer and i'm i'm interested only from the standpoint of getting keanu back at a really high point for him right you had to like have a good story to convince him to come back uh there's a digital shot of hugo weaving we don't know if that's a digital recreation or if they also paid the man a whole bunch of money to come back he doesn't really seem to me to be the type that wants to take huge check to come back to something he doesn't care about um, bubbles. Maybe they got the same voice guy that, that Marvel did. I don't know. Um, but it's it's an interest to me to see the high concept sci-fi in a situation where technology has just overgrown itself in the 20 years since the movie came, originally came out. And in a world in which we've gotten a Blade Runner sequel and other high concept sci-fi, we're getting a Dune adaptation where you know other high concept sci-fi exists and has been done really well arrival can this stick out and is matrix still a cultural touchstone the way it was circa 2000 you know and and that's really it's the same question we have about the avatar sequels right we make me and you make the make the jokes all the time about the fact that you could go to plenty of cons and never see somebody dressed as a Navi. Like you just don't see it. It doesn't resonate that way. I've seen people dressed as Neo. I've seen people dressed as Morbius, but really, honestly, a Morbius costume and a Blade costume are kind of interchangeable. Um, but it's it's of interest to me to see if they can take the high con bring back the high concept sci-fi and if it can work. It, it's not of interest to me in the sense of I need to know more about this world and this story because I felt like that ended in a way that was satisfying, if not completely understandable, to me. Uh, I don't really have a whole lot to say about The Matrix. I, it's, I wanted to do well because of my fondness for the first one, but I really... How can it do well, though? That's, Chad, that's the thing. It's, an, it's a larger expansion of this discussion that we just had. Like, mathematically, that is a very expensive movie. If you yeah. give people the option between sitting at home 
and seeing a movie that they are so-so on or going to the theater only to see a movie they're so-so on, they will sit at home and watch the movie on their TV. And then they don't have to pay for a ticket. And then those HBO Max subscriptions have to be through the roof to cover your rear end on a movie that at least costs 180 million. Yeah. Um, before I continue this discussion, you said Avatar, so remind me to go back to that in a second. But um, yeah, the, I think this kind of goes back to what does what do studios consider uh, acceptable losses? Because the Matrix is going to take a loss again. People are going to see the things they want to see in the theater, and maybe again, maybe we'll be to a point where you know the 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 um, the numbers are falling, and people and people you know like our age are like. I love the Matrix. I want to see this on the big screen. And maybe that bumps up the numbers. But for the vast majority of people, they're like, oh, the new Matrix is on HBO Max, which I already have. Click. And that's going to be that's going to be that. So uh, are they going? It, I, it seems like Warner Brothers has to just be content with bumps in HBO numbers by movies as opposed to actual money because their 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 stance to do day and date is is a costly one there's just people that are just not going to go to the movies because they don't have to yeah and when you spend 180 million dollars 200 million dollars to make the sequel um you know you were damn banking on a big opening weekend and then the movie to have legs and to be the talk of the town for a month and that's not gonna be the case uh, as we've seen, even with things like Kong versus Godzilla, which had a little bit of breathing room, they come and then they go. And and they're not really, you know, long-term conversation pieces. No, and it's a shame for something like Kong versus Godzilla because I think that was, you know, pure dumb fun. And I think that would have had, you know, it has some kind of cultural significance. Um, Speaking of cultural significance, Chad, what about the Navi? And the world of Avatar, which we all get to return to in Christmas at some point. Um, first, I want to take a shot at the movies because you you commented, you know, the the what we normally say is we never see anybody do anything Avatar at any of these cons or whatever. And uh, in June, I went to Disney World to the Animal Kingdom Park where they have the whole Navi land. And until you get to that park, there's nobody in the whole damn park wearing bought anything looking like a goddamn navi because nobody cares they like the ride they like the look of the land but nobody cares but now what i really want to talk about was uh, and i had to look this up again just to make sure i was not seeing something over the weekend and i wasn't like a little drunk at the time i saw it um but it's from the first time i saw it was from nerdist and there's apparently other people that said it too that i was that Avatar, not two, not three, not even four, Avatar 5 has a release date, which is December 22nd, 2028. Seven years from now, we're getting Avatar 5. That means somewhere between now and 2028, we're getting, what, four Morty suckers, three Morty suckers, and then the fifth one in 28. My my only thought, because I went to the Disney parks, is that they've invested so much, and there's probably so much potential for 
expansion of parts of Disney World with this land of Pandora that Disney's investing in this. But I just, I, again, I don't, I've seen the movie. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't understand why they were saying so much money because it's going to be so much money. And I don't know. I know Cameron went over there to shoot at least one of them. He shot two and three back to back. Okay. So if that, okay. If that is true. The, the deal was that Disney with that Fox had already written the check for two and three. So they had to go down to Australia and film two and three, but Disney made a contingent that they weren't yet writing the check for four and five, that they could date four and five, but they hadn't written the check out. See, this is, this is the issue with Dune right now is that Bienville is very pissed off and angry and yelling from the high tops because he has his sequel. Like from the reports from the movie, and I kid you not, okay, from the reports from the people who've seen the movie, the movie literally ends. Not only on a cliffhanger, it just ends. Fade to black, <laughs> ends. With the anticipation of you picking up the next in the next year. They did not film Dune Part 1 and Dune Part 2 back to back. They filmed one movie and have a title card for a second movie attached to this one. And the movie, from all intents and purposes, apparently does not know how to end or where to end, so it just ends magically with a black screen. Because he didn't know where to split the difference. So at least Cameron is going to be able to tell a, few, a true trilogy tale about his family of his family of blue people who were swimming in the oceans and 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 flying in the skies and plugging their tails into their cars but like you know Bienville's upset because this HBO Max thing just legitimately like all makes it almost impossible for Warners to write him a check for the next one they'll write him a check for the for the nuns uh Dune HBO Max series because they need content for HBO Max but they're not going to write him the check for Dune Part 2 until this one does financially successful. So, so at, at least Cameron is filmed 2 and 3, so we'll get an actual trilogy out of him, even if, you know, even if 2 sucks, we're definitely getting 3. Whereas, you know, if Dune is successful and people like it, but, but it doesn't make a whole ton of money... Hmm. All right, let me start with the director that actually rubs me the wrong way. Uh, as much as I dump on uh, James Cameron's Avatar movies, I don't really have a problem with James, James Cameron. Now, Villeneuve. Okay. I'm not going to start with him so much, but what you just said about how this movie ends, that it doesn't have an ending, it just ends, and that's a title card for a sequel movie. Um... I don't, I don't really blame him for that. I blame Warners for that. Because if you, you can have all the intentions in the world to make a second movie. If you're the executives at Warner and you're like you, you know, like we've seen them to be, you have to know that money makes the world go around, especially around your studio. So if there's, is it 100% sure that you've got a hit that's going to, that you're going to make a sequel for. Forget the pandemic. Is that the case? Because that's the only way you make that move. 
And we've talked about it. I don't see, even before the pandemic, I don't even see how you can think Dune is a surefire hit. At best, it's a, um, at best, it's a, it's probably a hit. But to me, it's more like a, if everything falls right, maybe it's a hit. So if that's the case, then there's no way you let him in the movie with not even a cliffhanger, just in the movie and say, come back in two years and finish the story. No, no, no. You, you end the movie in a way that we, that this story is closed, but we know there's more story coming at most. But to let him just say, to, to, to just end it like that, that is just, Mal, that's malfeasance on your part, Warner Brothers. He is, he is the auteur and he's full of himself. So that's kind of how he thinks. But you as a studio have to be like, nah, bro, we, we can't do that right now. We can't risk this because now, unless they're willing to take the hit because of the pandemic and HBO Max, now you're going to have this movie that ends that nobody's going to care about. And a sequel and, and then the people, the people that do care are going to be upset because you prom- you basically told them you're getting a sequel and it's never going to come. Good job, Warner Brothers. Um, now, as far as Cameron goes, um, actually, after all that, I really don't have much to say about Cameron. You got the, you got two and three done. Great. Uh, let's see if you make four and five, whatever. And I, I get why Disney's doing it. I just don't think it's not something I would do if I was running Disney. It's just, it, it, I'm just grateful that they were like, look, Fox has already written the check. Like you're already down the rabbit hole on this. We're not going to pour more money into this. Like we'll get a bump anyway out of park stuff. Go make your movie. And and the you know and now it's dependent on that success for they them to write another check. Where I where I'm interested in the Bienville thing and the Dune thing is, if you think about Disney's biggest recent two part movie, right? Avengers and uh, Infinity War and Endgame. For all of its quarrels. And, and cliffhanger type feels you could have literally left everybody dusted and just left Thanos not even put Thanos will return and that's a complete story beginning middle and end you could be left to your own devices and done 15 years of fan fiction about what happened after the snap like you don't have to continue the Marvel Cinematic Universe after the snap you could have just left it there and that's because Marcus and McFeely, while they, you know, remember it was originally announced as Avengers 4 and uh, Part 1 and Part 2, Infinity War Part 1 and Part 2. And Feige and team made a conscious decision to make two distinct movies. That is Bienville's choice here, is to film two separate movies, to, to make two separate movies, one focusing on uh, primarily on Timothy Oliphant's character. And his and his family and all the things, and the other primarily focused on Zendaya's character, and that's the the way he's chosen to interpret the material and go through the very dense book and all the things. But like, you didn't get the opportunity to shoot both at the same time. You have no footage. You have a script. You know, just like just like Ben Affleck's Batman. Batman has a script. You know. <laughs> Just like Edgar Wright's Ant-Man has a script, it doesn't mean we're ever actually going to see those movies 
and God forbid that they release the intellectual property and let us read those screenplays or that those screenplays get turned into comic books or uh, graphic novels or something, you know, when you do this this way where I'm go it's going to be two parts, but only if the first one's successful. Well, in that case, you need to definitely make a beginning, middle, and end movie. You can't leave the door directly open for come back in for the second part of the story because if you do that and the film isn't successful and you don't have a, a financial motivation to make the second part because there's not enough fan base for it, well, now you're just left with half of a movie. <laughs> yep, exactly. I mean, what would it have cost them? Another $200 million? To do you them know, both at the same time? To do them both at the same time. I mean, the Russo brothers filmed parts of Endgame at the beginning together, and they realized they needed to separate it, but it was only separated by like a month. Like they filmed Infinity War, they stopped for a month, did some editing, and then came back and started shooting in Endgame. And part of that was just because of the massive amount of people they had to schedule. I think it comes out to be less if you shoot them back to back because all the sets and everything you need are already there. You don't have to like take crap down and then build it back up again. Uh, you just have to know how to shoot it. So you can either do it, you know, like uh, Richard Donner Superman style where you're shooting one and two at the same time, or you do like the Russo, which was the Russo's plan at first. And everybody realized this is insane. We can't do this. And then they broke it up and they shot one and they came back and shot the other. And if they had to do reshoots for one, they shot it while they were shooting another. Um, I think that that's probably the way to go. If you're that confident that you're going to get the sequel, then yeah, go ahead and do that now. It's going to cost you less in the long run. I'm just interested to see what happens because like all indications are the performances are good, but they may not be awards worthy. And if you don't get the proper awards notice play, that you want from this film, then you've really just spent a whole bunch of money to make Bienville happy. Because it's not getting a sequel, it's gonna get a spinoff series, and it's not getting you Oscars. So what is it really profit a man to make a Dune, a Dune adaptation? Oh, it's not even making him happy because now he can't get the second movie and he, he wants to tell the whole story. So nobody's happy in this. They now, to their credit, they have at least been honest in the publicity materials and other things about it being the first half of the novel. So at least they're being honest. This is only the first half of the story. I mean, but if you're going to say that, then you kind of, I mean, you don't have to, but it implies that you're going to make the second half. The title um, card implies that you're going to make the second half. I think they're going to have to make this movie regardless. I, I think, I think, you, if they made this plan before the pandemic. The pandemic is going to force them to make the movie win, lose, or draw just because the first one's going to, in their mind, the first one's going to be a wash because of the pandemic. Um, which then you, you have, then you have to make Banville happy. You know, they just look at what Disney just did with Cruella, too, right? There's no statistical measure by which that, that there should be a second Cruella movie, but it's a way to make Emma Stone, who is also a producer on that film as well as a star happy and still in the Disney fold, you know, I mean, I, so. I mean, I think, at this, again, if I'm approaching anything in the pandemic, if it's received well by a, a, whatever I determine to be a, a 
a good number of people uh, and there's potential for the sequel, I'll go ahead and do it. I know it's a loss this year, but maybe by the time we get to the, the sequel, you know, we're out of this and I can make more money and it'll be worth it in the long run, hopefully. Uh, the thing with, with Doom, and I've said before, I don't know how successful Doom is going to be regardless, regardless of pandemic or not. So they can give it its money and they can make Doom too. And when it comes out and that falls flat on its face, then then they really feel like this was the biggest money pit probably since Justice League. But as I've also said on this podcast multiple times, the last guy, like, there have been three guys to do this now. The first guy didn't even get his movie made. That's how torturous that production was. And they have an excellent documentary about it on the internet. And the second one almost quit filmmaking altogether once he was done making that movie. So, like, you know, it's not like this material has a great track record. In all honesty, probably the best adaptation of it has been a miniseries on the Sci-Fi Channel back in the late 90s. People want the big screen thing, and I, I get it. People let their fans of it. I understand why they want it. Um, I want. But that's another it. thing. Where are the where are the Dune nerds? Where are the Dune fans? They can all blow up my Twitter. Like, where are the Dune fans who have been clamoring for a full fledged, high budget, twenty first century motion picture adaptation of Dune? I mean, I know they're out there. I don't personally know any, but I know they're out there. I mean, like, Lord of the Rings had a vocal fan base and an anim- and multiple animated movies before they went live action. Like, there was, there's a fertile groundwork there. I don't feel like there's a fertile groundwork of Dune nerds. I just don't. Please feel free to, like, blow up my Twitter at BCW Tiger Fan if you believe that, you know, you were a Dune nerd and that you've been clamoring for this your entire life. But, like, you know, I don't exactly think this is anybody's Super Bowl except maybe Vanville, who's, like, Damn it, you, let, you said you were going to let me do the impossible. I mean, there, there are other people. I know if, if he feels that strongly about it, I know there are other people that do too. It's just, I mean, I know this is anecdotal, but I don't know any. And that, I know I, for all we're fans, I know like somebody, uh, maybe not, I don't, maybe I don't know them personally, but I know of people. I cannot think of anybody that I know or like tangentially know that is in love with Doom. Everybody that I've ever known has like hated reading it in college. <laughs> and this See. that and every academic that I've ever run into has said that the only good thing about it is that you can teach an entire course on it because it is so dense and so thick and has so many interpretations and so many ramifications. But like so does Paradise Lost. You don't see a bunch of Milton you don't see a bunch of Milton uh, adaptations are floating around of either his prose or his poetry. This is correct. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. I, I got nothing really to, to add to that one. Um, I don't. I don't know, man. I'm. I, I'm waiting for it to come out because I want to see this reaction by other people. Because I, like you, I just don't see it. So, Chad, let's end this podcast talking about one of your favorite topics and a, and a topic that I saved specifically for the end of the podcast so that I could get your, your thoughts and feelings on it. Um, Sir Andrew Garfield was speaking to the, uh, to the media recently and issued a denial, a hard and fast denial. Let, let me get the actual 
quote up here because I feel like we should adequately quote Mr. Garfield in his denial. Um, and the actual quote is, I understand why people are freaking out about the concept of that because I'm a fan as well. You can't help but imagine scenes and moments of, oh my God, how effing cool would that have been be if they did that? But it's important for me to, to say on the record that this is not something I'm aware I am involved in. But I know I'm not going to be able to say anything that will convince anyone that I don't know what's happening. No matter what I say, I'm effed. It's either going to be really disappointing for people or it's going to be really exciting. So, sir, your thoughts on the comments by Andrew Garfield regarding his status for Spider-Man No Way Home. I think that last comment kind of sums it all up. It's like, no matter what I tell you, you're not going to believe me. Uh, no matter what I say, I am completely screwed because I tell you I'm not in it and I'm not in it. You're upset. I tell you I'm not in it and I am in it. Uh, I'm a liar. Uh, so, so yeah, he's he's really in a spot where he, he's really in an unfortunate spot because he can't. Let's if we take him at face value, and he's telling the truth. He was approached for the movie. He didn't do the movie. The movie's coming out, but we have all these rumors that all the Spider-Man past are going to be in this movie. And he's not. He, I mean, he he knows he knows the deal. He's worked on these movies before. He knows he can't say anything, even if, even knowing that he knows nothing because he's not in it. So yeah, he. And if he is in it again, we know how Marvel NDAs work. It's like we will take you out. So. Of course, he's going to say he's not in it. He, there's nothing else he can say. He's in the worst possible position. And I think of the Spider-Man people, he's in the worst because he actually has movies coming out right now where they're going to ask him about it because that's the nature of what we do right now. If somebody's in a comic book movie, no matter what other project they're in, they're going to be asked about the comic book movie, even if they're not officially in a comic book movie. So and I'm... I'm pretty sure he's doing uh, like the rounds for the the Tammy Faye Baker movie that he's in. So he's this is this is his life until December. They're going. Everybody's going to ask him about it. He's going to have to say no until either the movie comes out or we get a trailer that shows the other Spider Man in it. I think that would be dumb, by the way, but that that's where he lives. So I feel sorry for Andrew because there's he can't win. He knows he can't win. And he just got to sit there and take it. I think it's just, it's an interesting position to be in. Most Marvel people are smart enough to just talk about the Marvel snipers and just not say anything. Um, but at the same time, dude, like it, it's, it's how do you insatiate, like how you ingratiate yourself to the fan base, but also do what's right by the NDA. You know, it's as you said, he has, he's been a working actor since his time on the web movies. Like, he's actually continued, he started a Scorsese movie. <laughs> you know, he's had a career. He's done other things. It's just, I, I like, I've always appreciated his enthusiasm, but it is just, I, I think it's interesting. It's just going to spend more, spread more fuel to that fire, and I think that 
of all the Marvel movies, this is the one we're going to get the least amount of marketing material for as we go up to it. Yeah, I'm, that's probably the way it should be, just because of the nature of the movie. But it does put him in a bad spot. Yeah, but it also put Alfred Molina in a spot when he was talking to a French newspaper, and, and Alfred Molina didn't care. The the way he handled it, it did not put Alfred Molina in a spot. Alfred Molina's like, "What you gonna do? I'm just gonna say yes, I'm in the movie. What you gonna do, Marvel?" And Marvel did, you know, the smart thing. They're like, "Okay, fine." Put Doc Ock in the trailer. Everybody knows he's in it now anyway. It won't be a surprise. We can keep everything else in in check. But, uh, I mean, I think Defoe's been asked about it. And again, to your point, like when Defoe's asked about it, he said it in a way that no, this didn't get any run, as much run, and it's kind of died down now. He's like, I prefer to talk about other projects when it's time to talk about those other projects. And that was kind of it. Nobody really... I don't, as far as I know, nobody's asked him anything again. And that was like a month ago. Um, I don't think, but I don't think anybody else is in the position um, that's doing press. I just found out today that, uh, you know, Tobey Maguire, you know, he pulled back from acting and he's only done four things since Spider-Man 3. So it's not like people are trying to talk to him. And one of them is Great Gatsby. Yeah, yeah. I, I I bag on Tobey Maguire a lot of Spider-Man because I think he's the worst of the three. And I don't just bag on him. Be- I want people to know I don't just bag on him because I didn't like his interpretation of Spider-Man. I don't like him as an actor. And Greg Gatsby, like, Greg Gatsby is a perfect illustration of that because all the things that I hate about him in Spider-Man, he does in that movie. And it drives me insane. He just sits there with that doe-eyed face for every everything that's happened around him. It's just that one expression. That's it. That's all he got. Anyway. Indeed. So that'll about do it for this week's podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter, I am at BCW Tiger Fan. Please at me. All do nerds come at me on Twitter. I am at BCW Tiger Fan. And I'm at the mystery theory. Don't at me. I will look at his ads and we can solve it that way. I don't need any more in my. Uh, thank you very much, and go Gators. Ooh. So, um, I had the over-under at like week six before we heard the names Jerry DiNardo and Curly Hallman be thrown around these parts, uh, but apparently that, that's escalated to like week two now, because apparently the whole thing's a dumpster fire and everybody's ready to just abandon ship. Um, but I get it. Things are not going well. However, we said last week, you're not going to learn anything by playing McNeese. You play McNeese with your, like your third and fourth string offensive line. That's already not good. Okay. You can complain about that, but don't light it on fire until we lose to Mississippi State. That would be the first time they've lost back-to-back games to state since the 80s, I want to say. Yeah. So I kind of have this thing that when you lose to Mississippi State, I kind of want you to get fired. But uh, I know that's not the case. That we can't really apply that to Ed because he 
started off by losing to Mississippi State. But then he did kind of the other thing that I, I kind of want to keep going. He beat Auburn in Tiger Stadium when we should have got our asses whipped. So I think that kind of cancels it out. And then 19 cancels out the other one. So now if he loses the state, we got to talk. Well, I think the conversation that needs to be had at this point now is if you look at the record with Burrow for those two years and you take that out, his overall record is somewhere around even. And that's kind of a concern. Um, But the thing he has going for him is that over the course of every season that he's been the interim or the active head coach, they've gotten better as the year's gone on. Um, So that's, that's what he has in his favor. It's just a matter of keeping the locals, you know, less than restless. I mean, I, I get it. Like there, it is discouraging to not be able to bully Miss McNeese. But I mean, again, you had basically your third string off of the line out there. I know, I know everything else, but at least take that in consideration. Defense looked like you should have against McNeese. The offense looked like it had a bunch of high schoolers out there playing offensive line. That's what it is. So there's nothing you're going to do to, to satiate the mob until uh, he's got to be state and he's got to be Auburn. If he does that, things should quiet down. Uh, as it looks right now, he might get one of those. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't know. I really do think he has to beat State, though. If he beat State, um, losing to Auburn would suck because, again, they have not beat us in Tiger Stadium since bef- since my very first semester at LSU. The cigar game. That That is right. They have not won. They've been paying for that cigar game for 22 years, and I would like to keep that going. We'll see. I mean, it's just – it's an interesting place for him to be in because – the next two weeks, this last week and this week, there's this week and next week, there's nothing that he can do to, to make things better. Not um, a damn the thing. team, the team's going to look the way the team's going to look. Um, but it's once you, the concern I think overall is if this was the backup, the secondary and tertiary offensive line, and they couldn't move McNeese off the ball, the primary offensive line couldn't move UCLA off the ball. And you've got to have some form of passing game outside of Keyshawn Butte. And you've got to have some form of running game in order to take some of the pressure off your quarterback who's going to become David Carr if you're, if you're not careful. See, when, so when I watched that game yesterday, I saw, like, I saw the emergence of somebody besides Keyshawn Butte and, and Besh. I saw – the emergence of another running back uh, in um, actually both of the freshman dudes, even though one got hurt early on. The one that uh, I forget their names. I know one of them's Kiner. I don't know which one is Kiner. I think Kiner's the one that played later. Um, I see that they have the, the missing piece that TDP doesn't have because he, I will say this. I don't think they utilize him correct at all. Uh, he's a, one step hit the hole, and his best run of the night was one step hit the hole. 
So any of all this side to side crap, nah. You got a couple of under center plays, do under center or do pistol or something and let him go straight. And that's how you work him. The rest of them, they can do feed off the zone thing. I saw the emergence of those things at McNeese. So they need to play more. But uh, my some my biggest concern is the offensive line. I do think the playmakers around them, as the year go on, they are going to get better and they will be good. It's just this team is going to go as far as that line takes them. Right. And if your quarterback is consistently under pressure and consistently fearing for his life, that clock in his head is going to get uh, rushed up. And I think a lot of the concern for, for some LSU fans, certainly, is they're having flashbacks to you know Jared Lee being thrown in there too early after an unexpected quarterback change in the offseason and being forced to play too early in the offensive line, the game against Georgia, where he threw an interception and that was the end of any offensive creativity left Miles could ever have. So, um, you know, that's the concern and it's a valid concern. The PTSD is a valid concern, but like yeah. you got, you got to let this team play out and Ogeron's teams have always gotten better as the season's gone on. And, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, everybody right now at this moment in September looks better. Like Kentucky looks better. Florida looks better. Auburn looks better. Mississippi State, especially after last week against NC State, looks better. And the concern is that you've got road games you have to go on the road and play with this team. And that's that's the concern right now. The, the sky is falling kind of thing. So my, my counter to that would be, I don't think Jared Lee is an apt comparison because he got thrown in. Yeah, he was a rusher freshman, but um, he was – they were planning to sit him for like another two years. He got thrown in his rusher freshman year, and there was nobody else. Max, he got thrown in last year. He seemed to handle it well. Then he had a whole offseason where, from everything we've heard, it sounded like he was the guy. Now, should they have made him the guy if that's the case? I mean, it doesn't matter because Max broke his, broke his arm, but um, I think this is showing you that I, I have a hard, I mean, Max may, I mean, Miles may not be as mobile as Max, but Max isn't really using his legs all that much. So I have a hard time thinking that he, he would have beat out Miles or he should have beat out Miles if that was the case. The other concern that I would have is we've, we've gone through this situation in, in the Ogeron tenure, tenure before where, um, the offensive coordinator and the head coach don't click and that the plays take too long to get to the sideline and get into the huddle. And then you have communication issues and you end up with the Syracuse game where you end up with the Troy game and you end up with this big debacle. And the concern is that if you can't communicate the plays and get them in quickly enough in the, in, against McNeese entire stadium with maybe 70,000 people in the stands, how are you going to do it when you go down to Starkville? or you go up to Lexington, or you go over to Auburn uh, or Alabama and, and do that. And that's the concern, is that, that that kind of progression wasn't seen Saturday night. Well, so, I mean, this, Pete is a first-time play caller, so 
we should kind of expect some of those hiccups. I think the difference here between this and with Canada, uh, it just seems like Canada and Orgeron just hate each other's guts. So add in the offensive problems, that just kind of blew that up. I don't think we'll have that issue here. I mean, hell, even if Ed does hate his guts, he, there's nothing he can do about it. He's not getting to hire another offensive coordinator. Even if he stay, even if he's successful enough to get another year, he's stuck with this dude. There, there's nothing he can do about that. Um, I would hope that after these two hiccupy games, that they whatever their call system is, they streamline it to to take that out because that is that is a hindrance of this offense is this getting the calls in so late hinders what they can do. And they seem to do better when they've gone fast. The very few times they've gone fast. So I would hope they took this time to stream that. Um, Now, as for the teams that we're going to play and how everybody looks better. I know I can't say much because again, LSU looked like it did against McNeese, but um Auburn has just played two body bags. Granted, they've done what they should against those two body bags, but this is also a team that is still piloted by Bo Nix. And I don't think their coach is all that bright. So I I'm waiting to see. Kentucky, I thought might be a problem until yesterday when they went back to Kentucky of old and was like, what's the forward pass? Now nah, we're just going to run the ball. And again, LSU did look the way it did, but eh, I'm, I'm, I'm holding on Kentucky. <laughs> if they can just show any progress, they should at least be in a fight with state and Auburn. Um, Granted, if that trend tracks, Florida beat their ass. Ole Miss might beat their ass. We're not even talking about the other monsters because whatever. Um, and I can't even say a would beat their ass because I didn't. I watched well, a and they, 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 they have no quarterback now. They're, they're, the quarterback situation is, is done. Uh, it, it, Jimbo scored 10 points in a game where he normally would have put up 30 or 40. Like that, that's that's – you give Jimbo too much credit. I don't think Jimbo. Uh, I I don't think Jimbo. I give too much credit him. to the guy who created Rohan Davy. Of course I do. Is he? Well, I know he has his reputation as a quarterback builder, but I think that reputation deserves a stop at Jameis because who's he built since then? The and only- Emmanuel Sanders did get drafted by the Buffalo Bills at quarterback. Well, See, I no. So I know his name. You know his name. Yes, he did get drafted, and he lasted all of about oh, he lasted ten more seconds than I did in the NFL. Mm-hmm. And then he, and then now he's the analyst for the ACC Network. Oh, is he? I didn't even know what the hell he was. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think Jimbo gets too much credit. He, they had to slog through a game last year with what is arguably one of the worst LSU teams when he had his best AM team and they should have blown the doors off of LSU and LSU had the chances to come back and actually beat those dudes. So I don't give him that much credit. 
I'm, I'm not giving the credit everybody else does. Uh, I've heard people say, you know, if if Woodward were to fire Ogeron, the first thing he's going to do is call Jimbo, and I would revolt because I I didn't want Jimbo before. I don't want Jimbo now. Jimbo hasn't won anything since Jameis Winston. He's not going anything this year because, I mean, as long as Saban's here, he's not beating Saban. I don't care what anybody says. Um, he'll beat us when we are down. If we are competent, we're going to stomp their asses every year. And then you're going to add Oklahoma and Texas. And if you got to run them, if he's got to run, if it's got to be like a high-scoring game, they're done. They're toast. They don't operate like that. So in every every year we come in, I'm like, A&M sucks. And yes, they've beaten us three out of the last two out of the last three. That overtime game should not have, they should not have won. And again, our dirt poor team had put them in a position where one wrong move, they could have lost. That is not good teams are supposed to spank the bad teams. He can't do it. And uh, I'm pondering the question of whether or not to go lay some money on Florida this week. Because, uh, you know, my, my affection and affinity for the man named is, uh, is Dan Mullen. Uh, going up against Saban in the swamp on a Saturday night, uh, you know, this is, this is his moment, man. This is the moment to take it to the next level. So how about this? Whatever money you're going to lay down for Florida, how about you just give me half of it and you keep the other half and you'll come out way better than you're ever going to do bet, taking this bet? Uh, I mean, the spread's only three and a half. So you tell them you think Florida can keep with it within, a two quarterback system can keep it within three against Alabama mm-hmm. and possibly win outright. Um, keep in mind, I did bet on this team, and then they threw a shoe, and then I I missed the entire college football. But again, they threw a shoe. They could have won. They should. They probably should have won, but they were stupid and threw a shoe. And that's they also what, set their best. They also set their best player that night. Well, I mean, that is kind of the hubris of Dan Mullen. He figured he didn't need his best player to beat uh, to beat LSU. Everybody agreed with him, and it proved to be false. And that's the thing with Dan Mullen. Dan Mullen is a great play caller. Um, he will scheme people up. But, um, excuse me, I'm wrong, but he's another one that ain't never won shit either. And I don't I don't know what it is about Dan, besides the fact that I don't think a lot of people that work with him, not, not the coaches per se, but the administration like him. But, uh, yeah, I he's, again, if there was a list of people that I did not want for LSU, it's like Jimbo and Dan Mullen right there. I know a people Almost. think they're – Mullen's not leaving Florida. I mean, the, the only reason that he got the Florida job was because Jeremy Foley finally retired, and then they hired the guy from state as the AD at Florida. And so because of Mullen's ties being the offensive coordinator under Meyer, it just made sense for him to go back there, especially with his AD who had hired him at state at Florida. So that's how he got the job because um, the former AD at Florida passed on him twice. Yep. So 